Welcome to WAPI Hour, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Dr. Amy Davis Abdallah, who is a professor at Nyack College in Nyack, New York. Amy is the author of the Book of Womanhood, and we pick up in this podcast conversation with her discussing the four different relationships that she thinks it's important for women to consider as they figure out what it means to become a Christian woman. We hope you enjoy our conversation. I'd like us to take a moment just to chat a bit about each of these four relationships, right? So in the first one, the relationship with God, I'm curious what one or two things you think women in particular need to understand and really believe if they're to develop a healthy, dynamic, and intimate relationship with God. Well, what's interesting is I, so often when I think about, okay, what you need to know, I'm coming against what I feel like is not very good teaching that people have had. And so some of it's from my experience. So maybe no one's had hangups on this. So what I really believe that women need to know and understand about their relationship with God is that we are in the image of God and that God loves women in particular. So when we think, and I think I've, I've, I've read this before, it almost seems that we're taught that men are more in the image of God than women. And it's like women are a secondary image of God, but that's just not what we read in scripture. I mean, when you read Genesis 1, 26 to 27, it says that God created them in the image of God and God, God had them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And then, and God, God said, Hey, you're going to be in relationship. And then they were called co-stewards of creation. I mean, God didn't say, okay, man, you're going to do this, and, and woman, you're going to do this as you co-steward creation. You do see some differences later on in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, but it's like, we're supposed to co-steward. We're supposed to be doing this together. And so to realize that a woman is in the image of God, that you, and I'm just going to use you, and I'm right. talking to you, but I'm right. talking to our audience, you, right. but you are in the image of God, and God is everything that you are. So often femininity is just like, well, femininity is weak masculinity is strong. And those are cultural constructs anyway, but femininity is weak. And so, so you need to hide your emotions. You need to never cry. You need to not do this, but, but that's not what God says to us. God says, I've made you who you are. And the more we hide, hide our emotions or hide whatever we think is feminine. Um, and we find emotion sensitivity. Those are just ones that I often see are hidden and pushed down. And because we're pushing them down, it's just like a beach ball that we try to hold under the waves. So we push it down. And then when, when, we, when our emotions come up, they come up so crazy. I mean, and I hate to use that term, but, but they come up in a way that's completely uncontrolled and often inappropriate. But the reason that it's coming up inappropriate is because we keep pushing it down. Mm -hmm. If we were allowed to let that beach ball float on the waves and be part of who we are, then, then it, doesn't, it doesn't become as overwhelming. And so to say that you're in the image of God and everything about you, not everything about you, certainly there, there are sinful things, but who you are in, in your depth is good. Uh-huh. Um, that, 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 that Jeremiah, the prophet, we call him the weeping prophet because we think he's weeping the very tears of God. And this is good. Mm -hmm. You being in the image, image of God and what God has created you to be. And even the stuff, um, that makes you feel weak, you know, God, God somehow through Jeremiah 
lets himself be weak. Mm. And, and you are like God. You represent God. When you go places, you are, you are representing God to these people. And, and God has chosen you for that. You, our image is marred. It's, it's twisted. I think about it as something twisted. But when, as believers, that, is, that twisting is becoming, is, it's being untwisted. Mm-hmm. And as we journey with God, we are, we are moving forward to that gloriousness. And we all reflect the image of God differently. Like I remember reading Captivating at Wild and Wild at Heart by the Eldridges. I have opinions on that, which are, which are in my book, but I remember reading Wild at Heart and being like, this is what you say men are. This is, this is what I'm like. Reading Captivating being like, this is what you say women are. I'm not like that. And so I feel like those boxes didn't work. They didn't work for me. And, and yet, and when I think, okay, I'm in the image of God and I'm going to reflect it differently from the way that you would, Karen, and differently from the way another woman would and the way that a man would, because we're all individuals, that we can reflect these, these great things about who God is. And so to, to know that, and I feel like we throw that term around all the time, but we don't really plumb the depths of it. And as I look around at creation, um, you know, Tim Keller would preach and he'd say, don't look at these beautiful views on the top of the mountain tops and gaze at them. Look at people and gaze at them because these people are in the image of God. And so in that sense, they're more beautiful than what you're seeing at, at the mountaintop. And I, ha- I haven't plumbed the depths of what that means. And when I sit back and I really think about it and I begin to treat others as people who are in the image of God, who are like God and represent God. And to see the face of Jesus, you know, they often talk about, you know, in Matthew 25, and you've got the sheep and the goats. When I was hungry, you visited me and all of that. And to see others and to treat them as if they were Jesus, um, I think is very significant. So but we can only do that if we see ourselves and realize that we're in the image of God. And secondly, God loves women. Um, I grew up with only male preachers, male preachers, not because they don't like women, but they're going to engage with the male stories in scripture. And there's so many female stories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so many feminine words. Like even when you think about the words of Miriam, they're re- recorded in scripture. There's women's words are in the Bible. You know, the words of Miriam, the song of Deborah, the song of, the song of Mary. Jesus had very close friends who were women. When we read the word disciples, we need to read male and female because that's true. Luke 8 says like women finance his ministry and we're with him. And God loves women. God doesn't say women are second best. You know, the scripture doesn't say, hey, Deborah got to be a judge because God called all these men and they refused and there was no good man. It doesn't make any excuse for that. We make excuses for that. And so God loves women. God calls women. And that's amazing. And so to receive that deep love of God and not say you're second best and to understand and live out the fact that we're in the image of God, I think are the two most significant ideas about being in the image of God. Yeah, that's great. So the second relationship you talk about is the relationship to self. Um, You spend a lot of time talking about our bodies. We've talked about um, this a little already this morning. And then you end Mm -hmm. with a conversation about confidence and finding and using our voice. And then you also talk about self-care in in this section. I'm curious how you understand self-care as a spiritual discipline. I've heard people use Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 9-7. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I've heard people use that as a sort of a a reason or an excuse for burning the candle at both ends, if you will, and really not taking care of their bodies. So I'm just curious, how ought we think about that verse and others that are like it in the context of being good stewards 
of the bodies that God's given us? That's a really great question. Mm-hmm. I've, I've in fact never heard that um, used as, as an excuse, but I'm not sure that Paul is saying is saying that, although he lived a kind of crazy life, did he not? Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I look at Paul, I wonder if he was in his life just seeking to make up for the fact that he killed Christians earlier. And so he works very hard to do that. But Paul, as a good as a good Jew would have, would have celebrated Sabbath too. Mm-hmm. So he would have mm-hmm. had a rhythm of work and a rhythm of rest and his rest may have looked different, but that's okay. But I just, I think what Paul is saying there, he's talking about giving everything up. He's talking about giving up his rights in that, in that context. And he's talking about giving everything up so that others can come to come to faith. And then I think what he's saying is my body doesn't control me. I control my body. My body doesn't tell me what to do because so often, especially in the sexually crazed culture that we live in, we think that that our sexuality and any desire for sexual intercourse rules us. Our lust rules us, all of that. But what I think Paul is saying is whatever I want in the body isn't what controls me. Because when I hear that, it reminds me of, I read this book called by Lauren Winter, and I think it was in this text. I read a couple by her um, called Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity. And what she says is that she's got a good male friend who is in business. He's happily married, has a great family, loves his wife, loved his, loves his kids. But every now and then when he's at work, maybe there's a new employee and he's like, I am attracted to this woman. And so what he does is he fasts and, and he fasts for, I don't know how long, it probably depends on his ability to fast. So maybe he fasts for, for a day. And the reason that he fasts is because he can say to himself, if I can deny myself food, then I can deny myself whatever my body wants because that's not at the end of the day what I really want. And so, so when I think about Paul beating his body, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I'm thinking about. And we Protestants have a really weak theology of the body. Like you can read Orthodox writers and Roman Catholic writers and they have a robust theology of the body. We Protestants think we unfortunately sometimes become Gnostics, Gnostics and they were they were they said you're heretical in early Christianity because they thought spirit was all there was and the body didn't matter. But Orthodox and when I when I mention Orthodox here I'm just talking about Orthodox theology which is Christian theology the church's theology throughout the centuries has been when God inhabited a human body God made everything about the body good and called us to take care of it. And that was one of the problems in the early centuries. That's why we have the Gnostics. That's why, that's why they said material's bad. And so when they thought about Jesus, they're like, Jesus just appeared as a human. He wasn't really a human. Jesus didn't really come through. I mean, God didn't really come through uh, Mary, like in all that physical messiness of that. God just, just kind of appeared, you know. Jesus was adopted as God. So there were all of these heresies that were coming around that, that went with Gnosticism because they had such because they hated the body, that the body didn't matter, none of that. And to say that our body doesn't matter just isn't true. When God became human, and I still just don't get how that could have actually happened, how Mary could have God inside of her. We talk about Jesus being in our hearts, but not actual physical God, you know? So how Mary could have God inside of her. And when all of this happened, God made everything that was already good, good again. Like even though sin had marred it, it didn't matter anymore because this physical body is amazing. This physical body is good. God inhabited it and said, that means that it's good. And that means that we can care for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the command, we'll talk about Sabbath in just a moment, but like, that's the fourth commandment, rest. That's the fourth commandment. Mm -hmm. And we say, oh, we follow the 10 commandments. No, we don't. We don't rest. We're not following the 10 commandments. So the understanding of self-care, like we like to say, 
We're going to take care of our spirits and not our bodies. But the problem is your spirit's in your body and you can't separate it. You can't. I mean, we say that it's separated at death, but then we talk about glorification where, where there's a physicality to our future because the physical is good. And frankly, I think drinking a cup of coffee is good. Like, there's certain physical things that we do that bring us pleasure. And when we take care of our bodies, then we're more able to do whatever vocation, whatever, whatever even little task, maybe making food for my children that I'm called to do. Like if I'm, and I was mentioning to you earlier when we were chatting before we even started this, there's too much going on in my life. I've been sick and I've been tired. And that means I'm not doing this other stuff very well for my kids. And then I'm grumpy and I don't want to be like that because I need to take care of my body because my body isn't just a housing for my spirit. We're not spiritual beings having a temporary physical existence. That's what people say. We're spiritual beings having a physical existence, which will become just spiritual for a bit. And then we go back to a spiritual and physical existence. What happens in our spirit affects our bodies. And what happens in our bodies affects our spirit. And to try to divorce those is just not living in reality. Right. So then the next relationship is a relationship with others. And there's so much that I appreciate about this section, both personally, and then also as I think about the women with whom I engage on campuses around the country. And and I'll ask you uh, to comment in a bit about healthy and contented singleness. But right now, I want to talk about your challenge to us and our relationships to others. You talk about moving away from the polarities of dependence and independence um, to a third way, perhaps we might say, um, to interconnectedness, which I think is really helpful. And you do a good deal of talking about non-romantic male-female relationships. In your experience, has this been uh, is this been a hard spot for young women? And how has the church been helpful or not helpful in this regard? I so it's like there's just a lot that is in this area. You know, it's interesting because we just talked about this section last Sunday night with with our group and and I threw out the question. I don't always throw out this question. This is why our conversation went in a slightly different way from the way that I had planned. But I threw out the question. So was there anything that you found interesting in the chapters that you read? And this is what they brought out. So one brought out, thank you for saying that this is okay. In fact, I did. Um, we met at the CBE conference last summer. And I just received an email yesterday because that's what I talked about about healthy male-female relationships. And someone had listened to the online recording and emailed me and said, thank you. And you've, you've made it feel like it's okay to already do what I do, even though I've had other voices that tell me it's not okay. And so, so one of the women in the group was just like, this, this made it feel like it was okay for me to have other relationships I already have. And another woman said, this was actually challenging to me because I don't have good relationships with men. And it made me think about, it made me think about what was behind that. I don't think the church has been helpful. I write about in my book, how my 72 year old mentor could only meet with me in public places and couldn't meet with me in his office. And for a lot of young women, to me, that's just frustrating. Like, especially with the Pence rule this past fall and the Billy Graham rule, like there's, there are a lot of blogs that have come out about that. One of the women, I think she wrote, she writes for Christianity Today and it came out in a bigger journal. I don't remember, like it was Wall Street Journal or something like that. When, when they talked about the Pence rule and she talked about, oh, I was invited to be on the board of this organization. And she came to meet this gentleman for breakfast and she walked in and there was another guy with him because he couldn't meet with a woman alone in a public place. And she just felt frustrated because she's like, you can't even meet with me normally. And so I think there's a lot of frustration for women. I don't think that the original intention is necessarily bad. There's a, there, the intention is 
is to protect marriage. And I understand that, but I don't think that, that we find sexual purity even when we're talking about sex or sex chastity, let's just, we can talk about that even in marriage where you're, where you're, where you're saying, okay, I'm only with this one person. I don't think we find that by getting rid of all of our temptations. Because when I read about St. Anthony of the desert, he was totally sexually tempted and he was all alone. So much of our temptations and the way we respond to them has to do with the way we've been taught to think. And so in the book, I write about how I was walking behind this woman who was in a burqa. I was in the Middle East and I was in a marketplace and I watched a shopkeeper stare at her and practically lick his lips about how like, and I'm like, she's completely covered. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with what she looks like. It doesn't really have to do with her personally. It has to do with the way that he's been taught to think about women in, as, mm. as sexual. And I'm not saying that that's the way all Muslims have been taught. I'm just saying this is, this is an observation that I had. So he's been taught, this is the box that I put women in, and the church does the same thing. I hate to say it, yeah. but we agree with our culture rather than being countercultural in saying, hey, life is not all about sexual intercourse. Life is not all about our sexuality. That is a part of our identity. It is not our identity. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity is bigger than that. And yet with the church, we have and so frequently had all of these rules. I mean, I interact with all men. There's only ever been men that I work with. And it was frustrating to me because the guys would go out for coffee and I wouldn't. And I wanted community, but that was not being offered to me. And I just had to sit back and say, okay, this is where we were. And this is why I think about this. Because I'm like, it, we, need to, we need to normalize the fact that we can go out for coffee. Like not all relationships are safe. Like there are degrees of safety in relationships. Like I'm not, I'm not going to have close relationships with every man, but there are certain men I can have close relationships with. Um, to recognize sexuality, especially with Me Too, Church Too, and all of this, how do we recognize someone else's sexuality? Maybe say, wow, this person is really, really attractive, but not take advantage of it. You know, we're, we haven't been, there's so much to say about this. We haven't been that good at figuring it out. And I also think, that it's tragic for us because unless I'm having a relationship with those who are different from me and different sexually from me, unless I'm having a relationship with men, my humanity isn't fully realized because we become more truly human as we have relationships with those who are different. And yes, I can't have relationships with everybody, but I, I need to have these relationships with men and I need to have relationships with women, women because it helps me become more truly human on mm -hmm. this journey mm -hmm. of womanhood. The church hasn't been helpful. We put boxes and I know boxes are easier and we feel so out of our element when we don't have boxes because it's yeah. like, wait a second. But Paul says, everything's permissible for me, but not everything's beneficial. Yeah. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And I think that's what he's, he's like, I'm not going to let it master me. And so I think some churches are moving forward and figuring this out, but we need to talk about it. Because I was at a She Leads conference this past fall, um, Missio Alliance has these different conferences. Mm -hmm. And so the, the vision of She Leads is to have men and women working together. It was based out of Paznaz, Pasadena, Nazarene Church. There's a great female leadership there. Tara Beth Leach is the pastor of that church. It was not simulcast, whatever, live streamed across the nation. At our place, there was a whole bunch of women and then the men who were there were either spouses of the pastors of the church or pastors of the church. There were no other men who were coming in. And like, we have to talk about how to do this together mm -hmm. because we have this mm -hmm. paradigm of leadership and this paradigm of, of the way of living, which is based on men with men, especially in the church. We need to change our paradigm. And that means, and it doesn't mean just putting a female on your staff. Because you can, might still work in your silos and you're not actually working together. And so we need to talk about it and we need to change our paradigm. And I talk about changing the paradigm. Um, I did that last, last summer with CBE. And 
Like, this is how we need to move forward. Yeah. We need to talk about it. And yeah. I don't, because I, I don't know that I figured it out, but I think the only way to figure it out is to make the conversation and to think about it and to try things and see what works. Right. Well, let's move on to the fourth relationship that you talk about, and that's the relationship to creation. There's a lot we could interact around from this section, but I thought maybe we'd talk about Sabbath. And thank you for making this an important part of this section and for pushing women to think about uh, being Sabbath keepers. I'm, I'm curious what your observation is about young women that are involved in, in women and, and what they're thinking about Sabbath. Are they are they being taught about Sabbath in their churches? Do they have preconceived notions about uh, legalism with regards to the Sabbath? What What's your experience in terms of where women are coming to this to this conversation from where? Well, fortunately, spiritual disciplines have become more in vogue lately mm-hmm. in a lot of different churches. So some of some of the churches have broached the subject and some of them have encouraged encouraged Sabbath. There's a church called New Life Community Church in Queens, and we draw some students from there. And they're very that church itself is very interested in the spiritual disciplines. They talk about Sabbath all of the time. And so they have small groups that study that. And so that there has been talk about that. And unlike me, they didn't grow up with a lot of legalism with this. So they've either not heard anything about it, haven't had any conversation or they've been taught about it in the positive light. So when we come together, there's, there's not a huge pushback with regard to Sabbath in particular, but the idea that they can't actually do it is pretty, is pretty clear. I mean, so many of our students not only go to school, but they work and they're like, how do I set aside time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet when we talk about it, they're like, but I think I need, and I think I, I want that. Sometimes they just begin with like a four hours a day or something. They're like, four hours on Sunday, I'm going to set aside and I'm not going to do my regular work. And so sometimes there's something about doing it for a full day that is different to wake up and, and to have nothing on your agenda and have, have this for all day. But most of them are willing to at least think about it. See, I talk about it in my classes as well, because when we talk about New Testament, we talk about Jesus and his habits. We can't not talk mm-hmm. about Sabbath. Mm-hmm. When we look at Old Testament, I'm teaching a class this semester. It's an upper level theology class called Class of Christian Spirituality. So we look at the history of Christian spirituality and then we look at spiritual disciplines. And, and so this is, this is always encouraged, yeah. this idea of being or doing Sabbath as spiritual disciplines. And I think I think for my story, and I know that you deal with a lot of graduate students and people who are trying to get tenure and, and all of this, and we're talking about burning the candle at both ends, and we uh, we say, hey, let's do this, and and so many of us look at our lives and say, how could we possibly mm-hmm. have 24 hours where we're not working? Uh, this has been habit for me since 2001. I was challenged to do it at the beginning of seminary. I was in a three-year degree, and I said, there's no way I can possibly do that. Then during my internship, I said, if this is going to be the rest of my life, I've got to try it. Because if I don't set good habits now, I'm never going to be able to do it. Um, some of the spiritual writers would say, there are a lot of spiritual disciplines we can gradually go into. Sabbath is not one of them. <laughs> because you actually have to have a literal break um, where you stop and you stop for a certain period of time. And you have to plan on doing it for a while before you even achieve any benefits from it. For me, I started in 2001 when I was doing my internship. When I came back to school and I was still working three different jobs and going to school full time, I'm like, God, you gave me this. This is the fourth commandment. If you're telling me to do this, you've got to empower me to do this. I don't think I actually can, but I'm going to try it. We'll see if it works. Come mid-October, not only did I have no, not only did I do no regular work on Sundays, because Sundays became my Sabbath. I think it's different. Like when I was in ministry, it had to be Thursday because Sundays were work days. Right. So it's not all about, it's about the spirit of Sabbath. So mid-October, full semester, 
I not only did, did no work on a Sunday, but I did no work on a Monday. And then I went for a hike all alone because everyone else had work to do. It's no fun when no one's doing it with you. I'm sorry. It still is fun, but it's more fun if people are doing yeah. it with you. If God calls you to do it, God's going to do it. God will empower you. And so I found this has been a habit for me. I've been employed at NIAC. Um, I did have a sabbatical, but I got my PhD while I've been employed. I was hired with only a master's. And so I was going to school and teaching at the same time because they didn't have summer courses at the school where I was go- where I was attending. It was all happening at the same time. There was one Sunday during that whole time, during those five years that I worked. Yes, it takes organization on the other days, but working every single day doesn't necessarily make you more productive. Mm-hmm. In fact, I found that when I don't work and when I like, sometimes when you're not into this habit, you start to have all these ideas about work. So what I would do is I would write them down and I would set them aside. So I still have them. Like you can put them in your phone. So I'm going to look at that tomorrow. So you might have this great idea, but then the next day you're so excited about coming back to work. And the day before Sabbath, you're just like, I'm going to finish this so that tomorrow I can rest because God's created, God's created you for that. Mm-hmm. God's given mm-hmm. you Sabbath as a gift. Some would say, hey, we don't have to follow it because it's the one command that Jesus did not reiterate in the New Testament. But what would Jesus do? Jesus would celebrate a weekly Sabbath and he helped the Pharisees understand what that actually meant. Um, He wasn't, when he said, hey, I'm going to heal on the Sabbath, he wasn't saying, hey, that means you don't have to rest. He was saying the Sabbath is for, is for healing and the Sabbath is for joy and the Sabbath is for celebration. And we need that in our lives and doing a little bit every day is not as, because that was my excuse for two years when I knew God was calling me to do it. And I'm like, no, I'm like, well, I have my little Sabbath every day when I drink coffee and when I go running, like those are my, you know, it's nothing like taking a full day and having worship as part of that. If you're, if you have more than what can fit into six days, it's possible, I think, that you're doing more than what God's actually calling you to do. Yeah. Because if God said this, and I agree with everything else on that list of 10 commandments, then why do I take number four and say, well, that one I'm just going to dismiss. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, I'm curious too, how your own experience of Sabbath has changed, particularly now that you have two young children at home. I don't know what, what end is up half half these days. (laughs) Yeah, it has changed. I don't feel like I have as much rest as I used to, Mm -hmm. not just, not just sleep rest, but also like, no, no distraction. Right. Unplugging rest. Rest. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, for, for me, it also changed when I got married because my husband didn't have that as much for, for his rhythm. And we're still working on like what we want those days to look like mm-hmm. as our family. Cause frankly, we go to church and we come home, the kids go to sleep and so do we. Yeah. And then, so when I have woman on Sunday nights, then that's different too. Right. And if I'm speaking somewhere, then that's different too. So it, it has changed. And, and the truth is I'm still figuring it out. You know, I talk about womanhood as a journey and sometimes Sabbath is a journey. Right. So I seek to do no regular work. So whenever I'm speaking, whenever I'm, when I'm doing woman all my preparation has been done on other days. And so I just enter in mm-hmm. and do it. I'm still seeking rest. And, and I'm still, I'm still just, I mean, the truth is I'm still trying to figure it out. Right. And I don't know when I'm going to say, okay, this is the other way I'm going to do it. Cause I feel like the patterns, you know, before I had children and before I had, had, had a husband, my ability to make patterns very clear and very solid was, was just high. And now, you know, some mornings I'll have the opportunity to sit down with my journal and my Bible. And then other mornings, it's just chaos all morning before mm-hmm. I come to work, you know? And right now I'm not at the point where I'm going to wake up at five in the morning because my body just can't handle it. And I need to take care of my body too. So I'm still figuring right, it out. Right. 
Right. And maybe well, someday and, yeah. I'll say I've arrived, but I don't know that. Well, and there's, I, I think there's freedom, right? To be on the journey. Yeah. And I think it's helpful uh, for you to actually name that. And because I think other, other women need to hear that I'm not the only one who's trying to figure this out. And, and so that's great. Thank you. You mentioned earlier that you, you have a sister with five, five I do. girls. I do. Um, and um, I'm just curious what, uh, as you think about your research, as you think about your experience uh, leading uh, women on this journey for the last number of years, uh, what words of advice or encouragement or challenge even do you have for those of us who are raising daughters? And then us who are raising sons. And then, you know I mean? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I'm new. I'm new on this parenting thing. I have I've worked with college students for a long period of time, and so I can work with them in a different way. But the only words of advice I have are talk, create space to have conversations about anything and everything. You know, I was listening to the radio last week, and it was talking about pornography, and it was talked about how pornography affects the brains of teenage boys yes. and and it was super disturbing and and then she said but this is so hard for us to talk about you know and our kids it's so hard to talk about for our kids and then just the week before that I had moderated a panel in our chapel about sexual abuse and both of these topics just made me want to take my children go home hug them have my husband come home and stay there for the rest of our lives right. because they're so big and so mm-hmm. and I want to protect my kids because I feel like that's my job Right. And I don't want anything to happen to them. But I also know that I can't control that. Yeah. And I hate that knowledge. But then I was listening to her. I'm like, why are you afraid to talk about pornography? Like, why are you afraid to talk about sexual intercourse? Why do we have this fear? Yeah, maybe my mom and dad didn't talk about it. But I guess with this book and this research and, and all of that, I have thought through, hey, we need, we need to talk about this stuff. And I'm not going to perfectly talk about it. It's about, hey, this is going to be a conversation. And this is going to be a conversation starting when you're young. And it's going to be a conversation. So talk about everything. Talk about bullying. Talk about all of this. Because we need to create space. And that's all I do with women. Not all I do. It sounds so simple. I mean, there's, it's complex. But so much of it is, we, I just create space so we can talk. Mm-hmm. So that you know, the questions that you've had, you can ask. And I'm not going to have this look of shock on my face. Now, I've had to really work on the look <laughs> of shock. The, uh, be, and it's been years, you know, I've been working with women because my upbringing was so safe. And so many of the, of the women and the men, I mean, it's not only men, women that come into my office and tell me stories. I've had to work on not having the look of shock. So we've got to work on our emotional yeah. reaction yeah. And, and not have immediate anger or immediate because we want to create a safe place mm-hmm. for there to be conversations. And I think that's for boys and girls. Yeah. We've got to create those. And that's the only, that's the only huge word of advice that I can possibly give. And again, I'm dealing with yeah. a three-year-old and one-year-old. Yeah. So it's very different with other areas. Yeah. How has the time, your research, your writing, implementing the program, how has it affected your own sense of what it means to be a Christian woman in this particular moment in history? It just feels like the moment keeps, keeps changing, you know, because I'm on social media 
And I would prefer not to be on social media, to be fully honest. But, you know, as an author, like it's significant for me to be there and to see what people are talking about and what's going on. Me too, church too, silence is not spiritual. All of these hashtags and these conversations that we're having, I feel like the moment keeps changing. And so I just feel like I'm always pushed on the journey. Yeah, yeah. I'm just on this journey. And I'm trying to figure out how to walk together with other people who are in different places on this journey. I'm pretty sure, I mean, so the book was published in 2015. A couple years later, I still stand by what it says. But now because of some of the conversations that we've had, it's almost like it needs supplementation. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it, a lot of it, just because some of the conversations that we're having, like, what does it mean to be a Christian woman? To be a Christian woman is on a journey toward wholeness and a journey of holiness and a journey of, of fully becoming ourselves in the image of God mm-hmm. and allowing that image to, to come forward. And so I'm not done. Sometimes, sometimes I'll go back and read portions of the book and I'll be like, I can't believe I told them this about myself. Mm-hmm. And then I'll read portions and I'll be like, wow, Amy, you need to remember that. Mm-hmm. You need to remember how to enact that. Because yeah. even the male-female relationships, I, I didn't have good relationships with men when I was in college. So, cause there, cause I thought relationships were primarily sexual and it was always like, we well, do you like me or don't you? Right, and right. I don't really like you. So I'm not going to be friends with you. And I don't know how. And so I'm still, I'm still moving forward yeah, yeah. and I'm still moving forward. Even with relationship with creation, I'm still on this journey of Sabbathing and conservation and creativity. And again, I, if I've learned anything, it's like, I just want to be on the journey. Well, you mentioned throughout the book, um, you quote all kinds of people. Mm. You mentioned lots of books and articles and whatever so the the end of your book the resources section is amazing there's just so much if folks want to pursue the sabbath thing for instance you mentioned lots of authors there the other thing you you do that i think is helpful and both in the moment as well as i think maybe a resource for folks to come back to is the prayers that you end each chapter with. And I thought it might be nice for us to end our time this morning um, reading together a prayer uh, from the relationship with others section of the book and to read it. It's written in first person, but I'm thinking even as we pray it together in the first person, we really are actually praying it not only over ourselves, but over our audience as well. So let's, let's pray together. All right. Oh, Trinitarian, Trinitarian God. God who is forever in community, grant that I may be so transformed into your image that I may fellowship in community as you are in community. Show me myself so that I can bring her to others. Empower me to be like Jesus in relationships and guide me into interdependence. Empower me to resist sexual temptation and guide me into friendships and partnerships with men. Teach me to embrace and love my life, whether single, dating, or married. As Jesus heals, please heal relational areas in my life that need it. As the Holy Spirit leads, please lead me into relationships that are glorifying to you in all ways. And as the Father parents, please bring me mentors, spiritual mothers, and fathers that will nurture and challenge me. May I be so transformed that I am able to bless and bring wholeness to the people of this broken world. I pray this in the name of the Son, to the glory of the Father, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Well, thank you, Amy, for your time this morning. Thank you for interacting uh, with me and our audience around your book. It's been a real pleasure, again, to read the book and then to have this conversation with you. So thanks so much. It's been my pleasure to be with you, Karen. Great. You have been listening to Wappy Hour. WAP, Women in the Academy and Professions, is a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. Thanks for joining our conversation. We'd love to hear your feedback. To offer it or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.